making USB safe again, and the NSA poning Cisco security appliances. These stories and more coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. We begin today's report with a look back to 20 years ago. That's when developers issued the first specification for Universal Serial Bus, or USB. USBs eliminated the mess of connecting cables to ports on computers by defining how devices such as cameras and hard drives can be seamlessly connected, and the value of USBs continued today. But USB devices, such as thumb-sized flash storage drives, pose big security risks. And as my colleague Jeremy Kirk puts it, USB is an old friend that isn't going away anytime soon even with security woes. Jeremy is ISMG Security and Technology Editor, and he joins me to discuss efforts to make USBs safer. Welcome, Jeremy. Hi, Eric. Before you explain how researchers seek to mitigate those threats, why are USBs so risky? USB drives are incredibly useful. We use them to transfer files and to connect hard drives seamlessly to computers. The problem is computers blindly trust USB drives and they trust whatever is presented to them. Whatever device is plugged into your computer, it automatically loads the driver and automatically will run anything that's on the USB stick. Kevin Butler is an associate professor at the University of Florida and explains the danger. There's no implicit security within the USB protocol. As long as you identify an interface the host will be more than happy to uh, register that interface. And that's the key behind attacks like bad USB, where a keyboard interface is exposed along with your data. So when you think you're plugging in a flash drive, you're also plugging in a device that can inject keystrokes as a means of compromising your system. What are researchers developing to mitigate these problems? The researchers presented a research paper at the USNIC Security Symposium, and they gave out red hats similar to Donald Trump's campaign that said, make USB great again. What they wanted to solve was, how can we bet the applications that are on a USB drive to not infect a computer or be malicious? What they've done is taken a really close look at the USB protocol and figured out a way to identify the information that comes off of the USB stick and tries to communicate with the host operating system. This is very difficult because USB packets are very hard to distinguish what exactly they do. What their technology does is called USB filter, and it's basically a packet-level access filter that can block certain actions taken by the USB drive. Butler explains how USB filter works. We can actually constrain specific USB devices to work only with certain applications. So we can allow that when you plug in a USB webcam, for example, only Skype can use that webcam. That way, nothing else can be using it and or, you know, potentially spying on you because of some background person. So that's managed to, you know, find its way to turn on your webcam without you realizing it. Is this software available now? The research paper is out and the code is open source. However, the researchers have not created a user interface that would allow administrators to manage a large fleet of computers with it. So the real power of this will come when an admin is able to set up a policy and this software is across a fleet of computers. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you, Eric. Security researchers contend that for 11 years, the United States Electronic Super Spy Agency, the National Security Agency, had decrypted traffic flowing through Cisco PIX security appliances. To discuss the research findings, I'm joined by Data Breach Today, Executive Editor Matt Schwartz. Hi, Matt. Hi, Eric. Who are these researchers and what did they say the NSA did? It's a varied group of researchers. 
there's no one organization or country in which they're hailing from, but they've been working collaboratively, sharing information online, looking at what was contained in the equation group dump earlier this month, in which a group calling itself the Shadow Brokers released 250 megabytes of data. As researchers have been investigating the data dump, they've found a large number of tools which they've ascribed to the NSA. What kind of tools? Well, these look like firewall compromise toolkits. And so far in these toolkits that have been released, we've seen exploits for devices built by Cisco, also TopSec out of China, Juniper, and Fortinet. How did the NSA supposedly use these tools? Well, it's impossible to know exactly how the NSA would have deployed these tools. But what we do know is that for Cisco PIX devices released from 2002 to 2008, and which were supported by Cisco until 2013, the NSA had a toolkit that allowed it to not only gain direct access to the devices, but also remotely and without first authenticating to the devices to be able to decrypt traffic. They could remotely spy on the devices or use the devices to gain access to a target network. Do we know who was targeted? No. Shouldn't the NSA have notified Cisco of the vulnerability? That's what Cisco's suggesting. It's written some blog posts on these security vulnerabilities. And beneath the surface, at least, you can feel the exasperation. They're saying, look, if someone finds a security vulnerability, please notify us. But of course, if you're an intelligence agency, you're not going to go giving away this stuff for free. Well, it's been years since Cisco marketed the PIX security appliance. Uh, it stopped supporting the device in 2013. Still, as you reported, 15,000 of these appliances remain in use and vulnerable to exploits. Will Cisco patch the vulnerabilities? I do not know if Cisco will patch the vulnerability. I would strongly doubt it. As far back as 2009, Cisco was urging its customers to move to different firewalls. But firewalls are expensive devices. I mean, in the consumer space, we see webcams with known vulnerabilities, routers that are a decade old and haven't been patched for nine of those years. It's not all that different in the enterprise space with these more expensive devices. The refresh rate, despite what vendors suggest, turns out to not be what vendors suggest. So the solution is just get rid of it. In an ideal world, people would be junking these old machines every time that they were no longer being supported and spending the money to move to new devices. Obviously, that's some kind of dream vendors would have. But the reality of the situation is these are expensive devices. Enterprises aren't spending the money or don't think they should have to spend the money to upgrade to newer devices. Obviously, what's happening is they are remaining at risk of exploits for these devices. Although if you want to be a bit cynical about it, they were already at risk because the NSA had already owned all these devices. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Eric. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. The goal of achieving a national healthcare exchange faces many information security and privacy barriers. Healthcare Info Security Executive Editor Marianne Kolbasak-McGee explains. Obstacles to achieving national health information exchange include the patchwork of diverse state privacy laws, and federal regulations, and even some international considerations. But those challenges are not impassable roadblocks to progress. Valida Fredlin is the new privacy officer of the Indiana Health Information Exchange, and she says those privacy and security challenges can be solved. 
I know technologically we are able to exchange the data, so I think it's a matter of time before we're able to sit down and create an interoperability framework that works for multiple types of health information data repositories. A major goal in moving towards National Health Information Exchange is to improve the quality and coordination of patient care. But Fredlin says that that would require a consistent understanding among those who are working with the data, not only of the functionality, but also of the privacy and security framework in which they exchange information. It will require good education for members who are working with the exchange data to make sure that everyone participating has a good understanding of that privacy and security framework. International privacy and security issues could also influence national health data exchange in the U.S. As Fredlin points out, it's not unusual for international data hosting sites or third parties to work with healthcare provider organizations in the U.S. It's important for privacy and security professionals to at least be aware that data, whether used only stateside or used internationally, may fall under the jurisdictions of other international locations as it travels. Ultimately, secure nationwide health information exchange is still an achievable goal, but it's not an easy one. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee. Finally. The research and market intelligence firm Cybersecurity Ventures estimates that cybercrime cost victims $3 trillion last year. That figure should double to $6 trillion a year by 2021. According to the company's Cybersecurity Market Report, spending on cybercrime defense will exceed $1 trillion cumulatively over the next five years. Ouch! That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.